Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. Uh, this week, uh, we will be talking about Chapter 3 of Staying with the Trouble. But first, a little bit of business. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We've had a really great response, and we're pretty excited about how many folks are talking about this. With that in mind, someone, a listener, recommended that it would be good if we had a place to talk about the podcast and to talk about things that come up for folks and for listeners to engage with each other. Um, For now, we are going to make a Facebook group called the Book on Fire podcast. Um, We know that's not accessible to everyone because many of you may have decided not to use that format for a lot of reasons. So if anyone has a better idea of a place to host a discussion group, then please let us know. You can write us at the Book on Fire podcast at Gmail. Um, Also, in other news, we are upgrading our website. We were kind of testing the waters to see how much response there was going to be, but there are enough of you out there listening that we want to make a better website for the page. So there's going to be an expanded page with more links and more resources for you guys to follow up on that should be up by the time you look this up. So we can have more extensive show notes for every episode and we can share more links to stuff we're talking about and just have a better experience there. And that pictures too. Yeah. And pictures. Um, So you'll find that at thebookonfire.podbean, like a kidney bean or a pinto bean.com. All right. So chapter three is called Sympoesis, Symbiogenesis and the Lively Arts of Staying with the Trouble. What's this chapter about? Well, so since you asked, Sympoesis is a simple word. In fact, Sympoesis is a simple word are the opening words of this chapter. It's a word that Haraway did not invent. She credits it to um, another person named M. Beth Dempster. But it basically means making with, right? So poiesis is, uh, and that's P-O-I-E-S-I-S. It's the Greek word that means to make, right? And it's where we get our word poem, actually. Uh, but also there's a lot of medical terms like um, hematopoiesis is the physiological process of making red blood cells, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, and sympoiesis uses that prefix sim, which is with, to mean to make with. So that's exactly what it means. Sympoiesis is not a widely used word, uh, as a lot of Haraway's she likes to use words that are not widely used, you know, and she's introducing, she's trying to introduce this topic and this word and hoping that it becomes more popular. Now, a word that is more used and that she's partially responding to is this word autopoiesis. Okay. And autopoiesis, as you might imagine, is self-making, right? Because auto is that thing that that refers back to the self. So there's been a lot of work done on what are so-called autopoietic systems. And these are systems that have a, that are, they're a bounded system that's closed, that have an internal complex stability to themselves, to where they self-regulate, you know? And... So it, at one point, it became a very exciting idea in science 
to talk about these these complex self-regulating systems that are made up of all of these different components and units that are in relationships of complexity and feedback and synergy all with each other that that create some kind of um, dynamic yet basically stable or consistent whole. And so there's been theorizing around like the human body as like a autopoietic system. Uh, the human body, you know, it takes in inputs from its environment, but it has this like homeostatic ability where all of the different parts contribute to the ongoingness of the human organism, right? So like the heart is doing its thing, the brain is doing its thing, the liver, all the different organs, the blood is circulating around and it has homeostatic mechanisms, you know, so that when the heart rate goes up when it needs to go up or down when it needs to go down and the, the digestion turns on and everything and, and so you have like a bounded self-regulating system. Something that we're going to touch on in a few minutes is the Gaia hypothesis, which is theorizing the Earth itself as an autopoietic system, which is a bounded system made up of all these different individual kind of units or something. They're not really units, but you know, there's the weather, there's the oceans, there's, there's the soil, there's the organisms on it, and they all contribute to making the earth and its atmosphere a relatively stable, regulated place for life to occur. Now, this is the essence of the Gaia hypothesis. Um, as was put forth by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis in the early 70s. So there's theory already out there about autopoiesis. And it kind of, you know, it is exciting because it's not reductionist. Mm -hmm. Because it shows that a lot of different components that each have their own individuality can generate something that's more than the sum of their parts. There's right. emergence. There's emergence. There's all of these emergent properties that, that come out from, from all of these discrete individuals kind of interacting and generating with one another and they generate a systemic thing, a system that is complex and has all these features that you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict mm -hmm. from looking at just one part of it, you know? Um, and so it relates to, systems theory and complexity theory, all of this, and the study of emergence, you know, uh, which maybe some of y'all are excited about. You know, it's an exciting thing. And so Haraway, in a certain sense, is starting from this pre-existing work on autopoiesis and autopoietic systems. And she's saying like, okay, but that's still not quite good enough because... Autopoiesis presupposes a bunch of discrete individual things that then form something new by coming into their interaction with one another. And it, so it starts with individuals and then they start interacting and you see what emerges. But Haraway is pointing out like, this is not how life has ever worked because what's an individual? Individuals don't come before their connections. And there's even a quote here on page 60 where she says, critters do not precede their relatings. That's the main point. Uh, critters, in fact, are formed from their relatings. And there's never a starting point 
from which you can say these individual species or these individual critters started interacting. It's all been interaction the whole time. You know, so if you take all of these things into consideration, then what if, what do you have left? You have complex, partially self-regulating systems, but that are messily connected and entangled with other systems that are, you know, penetrated, are outside of it, but not really take part in it, you know, all of this. And so she is proposing sympoiesis as the word that better captures this sense of always being entangled. So I think for us to really get the importance of the concept of sympoesis, it's good to look at the history of evolutionary biology itself and the whole field and how that determines how people look at the world and what science does. We at least in Western culture, in the post-colonial landscape, continue to project societal relations on to the rest of life. And one way that I've seen that come up a lot is in, in trying to explain the cross-kingdom com- collaborations and combinations that become new organisms. So take lichen, for instance. Lichen are the organisms that created soil on earth by breaking down the rocks and minerals when they first arrived on yeah. uh, the terra form yeah. you know they actually it was just rocks and water at one point in earth's history and then the lichen who and there uh, was life in the and there was life in the and ocean and there was life in the ocean right so there's life in the there ocean there was no life on land right and there was no soil and there's no soil this is something life. that i just it just like became aware of this or didn't really think about this until the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. soil is alive. So right. obviously there was, no soil. there was no soil. If there was no life on land, there was just sand and rocks. Right. So lichen evolved and colonized the whole earth. And what lichen does is break down minerals and rocks mm-hmm. into forms and to create soil, thereby creating a substrate for the rest of life on earth, on the earth part of earth <laughs> mm-hmm. to evolve. Um, and lichen are lichen are a combination of a fungus, an alga, and a bacteria, and in some cases also a cyanobacteria. They're still kind of trying to figure out what lichen are. But in general, what we think of as organisms from different kingdoms combine to create new organisms mm-hmm. that took the strengths and resilience ability of the different kingdoms to come together to make a new life form that changed the whole earth. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, when you read about lichen and the history of lichen, often there will be this projection onto that organism, which is says a lot more about the speaker or observer than it does about lichen, which often I'll read people say, um, we don't know who's dominating who amongst these organisms. Who gets the advantage? Who's taking advantage? And who is a helpless victim of this collaboration? Um, which is just really interesting because this, there's an assumption of domination. Um, sometimes you'll even hear or read lichen referred to as like one organism farming the others, um, which is also really weird. Wow, that's so I've not encountered this. <laughs> yeah, the lichen farmers, <laughs> um, which is not, it's this very limited viewpoint where we have to project like the societal system of inequality that we live in where someone has to be dominating someone else 
which I think still stems somewhat from the early ideas about of competition that are still so much in play today. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, it could only be through domination that there would be this kind of cooperation, you know, yeah. in the mindset of a lot of scientists and theorists. Um, we tend to, I don't know, this is, here's another, like, who's we? Uh, some kinds of scientists project, continue to project societal paradigms onto the other life forms that they're studying. Another example of this, now we know uh, that multicellular life itself is an example of these cross-kingdom collaborations. Lynn Margulis, which Dave, who Dave mentioned earlier with the Gaia hypothesis, she was a scientist who first synthesized the work of a few other folks and ideas that fed into this concept. But she first published a piece suggesting that bacteria had been absorbed into cells, which eventually became the mitochondria that we hold in all of our cells. Well, basically, bacteria had been absorbed into other bacteria. Into other bacteria. Right, because she's talking about a stage of life when when she's talking about a stage of life when bacteria and and algae are what there were Mm -hmm. and archaea. Um, And so... Lynn Margulis was able to propose and then kind of definitively show that the mitochondria were once free organisms that became entangled with other organisms <laughs> in a permanent way mm-hmm. to create the eukaryotic cell, what we now know as the eukaryotic cell. Right. Yeah, so, and even to this day, our own mitochondria in each of our cells has different DNA than the rest of our body. You know, so we're still holding that evolutionary history inside each of our cells of this absorption and collaboration of different entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Lynn Margulis published this, she it took a while for her to get it published. But when she published her overview of the different ideas that would lead to this breakthrough in thought, she was definitely derided and mocked for a good while in her career. Um, and part of... The resistance she came up against was people having this concept that no life form would ever want to give up its own autonomy or trajectory or selfhood. There was still this very individualist concept about life, which continues today. Right, because like the background of all of this is like a scientific establishment, a conservative scientific establishment that assumes that each individual critter is an agent that wants to maximize itself totally um and makes rational (laughs) kind of economic decisions about cost Cost benefit analysis Mm -hmm. and like energy expenditure versus reproductive capacity and it's visualized much in the same way as neoliberal economics visualizes us economic agents as like a unit that's mm-hmm. like set free into the world and gets to make choices, makes rational choices for its own self-maximalization. And so just like neoliberal economics has a hard time conceiving of collectives or cooperatives of people that are not like coercive or hierarchical in some way, this that same kind of imprint of a skeleton of an idea in biology sees all of the animals, all of the critters, as being similarly individualistic mm-hmm. 
and motivated only for autonomous self-gain. Right. Competition. Competition. Yeah, I forgot to throw that word in there. (laughs) (laughs) Right, competition. Through competition. competition. Gain through competition. Which is still really popular, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with Richard Dawkins and other writers. Right. You know. Right. Right. And the point has never been that there's never an instance of true competition in the biological world. It's just that it's been overemphasized. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that overemphasis has had a lot of implications on the way that we think about life that are detrimental to our understanding. Yeah. Uh, so Haraway gives Lynn Margulis um, some, some time here, some very deserved time and appreciation and explanation in this chapter. And then she spends a couple pages talking about how biological sciences, um, what are called eco-evo-devo, <laughs> um, the ecological, evolutionary, developmental biology are moving in a kind of margulis inspired uh, direction. She calls it the extended synthesis of evolutionary theory that is really highlighting the evolutionary developments that come from species entanglement. Oh my gosh, like the squid. Yeah, there's this really cool, really cool squid, squid example in here, the bobtail squid. Hawaiian bobtail squid, which is a squid, presumably, that lives around Hawaii. The squid, early on in its life, develops this ventral sac that has to be inoculated with a specific bacteria, which is the Vibrio fisheri. And there are these luminescing bacteria. So the squid, which is somewhat translucent, the luminescing bacteria make it look like from below that it's just starry sky. So the squid is holding these luminescent bacteria that make it look like it's just a, a piece of the starry sky so that any um, of its prey can't really see it. So these squid develop with the bacteria to have this hunting capacity that is about them mimicking the night sky which is just so beautiful. There's so many elements to it, you know? Um, And if they don't get inoculated at a specific time with the bacteria before the ventral pouch closes up, then I guess it doesn't work. So it's this co-evolutionary thing that they still have to hope works out in a timely fashion in Mm -hmm. their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Right. But basically a part of this squid's developmental biology is the infection, quote unquote, with this bacteria and the squid specifically nurtures that infection and feeds right. the bacteria and right. creates a place for it. It it has a pouch mm-hmm. for the bacteria to live. Um, and, yeah, it's just fully part of its life plan. Right. Which is really no different than the bacteria that live in and on us. Right. But it's maybe a more, a more like wowza, you know, sure. kind of spectacular example because they're luminescing bacteria yeah mm. maybe ours are <laughs> <laughs> we don't know oh, wow <laughs> i've i don't know i've gone to the bathroom with the lights out really they didn't, they didn't shine yeah i would love to be infected with luminescing bacteria maybe i should become a partner with this squid yeah. you should think about it maybe i should think about it
Haraway ends this section by talking about a paper called Involutionary Momentum by Carla Hustak and Natasha Myers that she really liked and called beautiful. And I actually went online and found this paper, which uh, the authors were generous enough to make available. And the paper really is beautiful. So we have this word evolution, and they like counterpose it with this word involution. And I'd never really thought that much about what the word evolution means, because I kind of only know it in a post-Darwin world. Evolution. To evolve literally means to curve outward, to roll outward. And involution is the opposite. It means to curve inward. And so in this paper, you have this really beautiful, poetic, visual description of a different framework for evolution, basically, to be able to think with, a new thought to think with. And it's that maybe beings don't just evolve, Mm -hmm. but they also involve, right? Because the related word for involution is involve. So to become involved Mm -hmm. is to become entangled. And part of the way that they make this clear visually is by talking about evolution is all about the branchings, is about the divergences between species. And the classic symbol of this is the evolutionary tree, Mm -hmm. right? So we've all seen these trees of life where, you know, first are the bacteria at the root of the tree, then... They diverge into, oh, the plants diverge onto this branch, and then these, and then the animals are over here, and they diverge, and then there's more and more divergences and divergences until you get to individual species. And so the system is defined by its divergences. Each branch of life is rolling outward, you know, is rolling away from what's near it, Mm -hmm. is rolling away. So evolution is characterized by this divergence, by distancing, by going away from what's near you. And I never really thought about it that way, but they want to propose involution, involutionary momentum, which is curving inward, bringing inward, becoming involved, becoming entangled. And and there's a gathering, Mm -hmm. you know, where they're trying to say that an important place for us to look as far as who does what, who becomes what, and how are we defined as individuals is not just by what we're not and what we've left behind and what we've diverged from, but also what are we pulling in? What are we gathering in? What are the entanglements and the relationships that we're forming? So it's this inward curving, pulling inward, you know, which I think is just breathtakingly beautiful. Um, the paper itself focuses a lot on it's got two main points of focus and one of them is on uh chemical ecology which is the study of 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 how plants and animals like release chemicals into the air to communicate Mm -hmm. with one another which is really interesting field of study but then also they spend a lot of time talking about the orchid wasp pairings Mm -hmm. that were a favorite thing of darwin and that actually after Origin of Species came out, he spent the next three years devoting himself to the study of these 
particular kinds of orchids that have drawn wasps close or bees. Um, I think it's bees actually in a lot of cases. And they've done this by oftentimes by modeling themselves. The flowers of the orchid is modeled after the female bee's genitalia. Mm -hmm. The flower is pulling the bee in to get pollinated by mimicry of the bees themselves. And they use this, the authors of Involutionary Momentum use this as an example of cross-species involvement and pulling each other in. There's this really sweet comic graphic that's in the book that I think we're going to put up on the website about uh, one of these pairings uh, of a, an orchid and a bee. And it's actually a, an orchid, which is Ophrys apifera, which means bee orchid, literally. Um, but this, the bee, which was its pollinator, has long been extinct and people only, or at least Western scientists only know of that bee's existence because of what the orchid looks like. And the orchid for now is self-pollinating. Um, but that is not a strategy that will be able to keep it alive for very long. It's just going to prolong the extinction process of that species without its mutual partner in pollination. And I can't actually redo the comic without crying, so I'm not going to. But do you want to read it? I can read part of it. Yeah, we'll put the comic up in the show notes. But yeah, it's this really moving comic about this orchid that has lost its companion bee. And so the orchid is memorializing its lost partner. The orchid has become a speaker for the dead. The orchid has become uh, the one who remembers what has been lost because it was intimately involved with the thing that's lost. And the quote from the comic is about the orchid. It's an idea of what the female bee looked like to the male bee, as interpreted by a plant. So the only memory of the bee is a painting by a dying flower. Which is just really gorgeous. So part of, and, and so part of the point here is that Haraway ends on this partially to remind us of like, what is at stake? What is at stake in Sympoiesis and becoming with is that these relationships can be sundered. And that once we actually acknowledge the interconnection of so many forms of life into the web that is more of a web than a tree, then we also have to understand that when a strand is broken, that it has implications for the entire web. And just as this orchid and bee cannot survive for very long without each other, we know that there are whole ecosystems that are at stake when certain keystone species leave mm -hmm. or disappear. Um, so mm -hmm. we have to hold the weight of that as well once we start to acknowledge the richness of the complexity of interdependence of life on Earth. Then we have to understand that also every loss ripples out and affects a lot of other creatures. All right, so when we come back, we will talk about some examples.
science art worldings for staying with the trouble. So in the rest of the chapter, which is really most of the chapter, Haraway describes four different examples of what she calls science art worldings. So examples of collaborations, of ways people are acting in the world, of becoming response-able. So she's taking this emerging understanding from biology mm-hmm. about the way life really is, right. about the way that life works that it's not so much about bounded individuals, that it's very entangled, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to know where one being, where one critter ends and another one begins. And she's extending that idea into the social realm to talk about different hopeful projects Mm -hmm. that she thinks, I don't want to say adhere to, but... Exemplify. Exemplify or like resonate Mm -hmm. with biological reality mm-hmm. yes <laughs> yeah for sure because i think she's you know? partially trying to also you know always trying to break down the dichotomy between humans and life and the rest of life right you know and so right. she's saying we too are part of life mm-hmm. how can we create systems of emergence right across right disciplines and fields right. and kingdoms you know yeah i mean i see a lot of resonance with her dream re brown work Brown's yes, work here, which you is, know? that's a, that's, yes. So, um, um, like, how do we create the conditions in which our, our work is vibrant and alive and vital and, um, and organic. And organic, right. Yeah, I, yeah. So, Haraway's first example of a sympoetic art science worlding uh, is the Crochet Coral Reef. And this is sort of a conceptual art project that involves a lot of people. It might be, I mean, at least at the point that this book was published, it was had the most people involved, more people involved than any other art project to date. And it's an ongoing work. The people who started it are these twin sisters, Christine and Margaret Wertheim. And they are inspiring and encouraging and collecting work uh, from around the world as people crochet different creatures that live on the coral reef. And the coral reef is the site of interest here because the coral reefs, in most of the common understanding of what's happening within the economic, I mean, within the ecological catastrophe that is climate change, the coral reef ecosystems will probably be the first to collapse uh, because as the air is filled with carbon, the other effect of that is the acidification of the ocean. And so the coral reef, which those, they take reefs, is that plural? Yeah. Okay. The coral reefs. Reeves. Reeves. (laughs) The coral reefs, which take many thousands of years to develop um, and solidify and concretize are dissolving at an alarmingly fast rate. And they are, um, it's not going to be able to be rejuvenated at the same scale at which it's dissolving. 
And so the coral reefs are going to probably be the first systems around the world to collapse. They're up there with the Arctic as far as sensitivity and fragility right now. And so in honor of the coral reef communities, these folks around the world are crocheting and beating different life forms that live on those reefs and the structure of the reefs themselves. And so there's over 8,000 crafters in 27 countries who are creating these likenesses in crochet form of the life forms that live on the coral reefs. And they're doing it sometimes out of yarn and sometimes out of beads, but a lot of them are using plastic and detritus to also call attention to the amount of plastic that's in the oceans. And they're all doing this somewhat repetitive and meditative practice to honor and bear witness to the, what's happening on the coral reefs. And Haraway talks about how this creates a sort of intimacy without proximity. So they get to f- be intimate with the life form of the coral reefs without actually having to go there and invade that space as an outsider or as a tourist. Um, and this part reminds me a lot. Uh, we read a talk last year at the Cabbage School, which is in Western North Carolina. Uh, we went to a talk on radical craft and the radical potential for craft that was with Jessica Green and Lauren Guthrie. And they both talked about how within the potential, what craft has the potential to create these meditative states and uh, can act as a form of prayer. And so I think about these 8,000 folks around the world who are in these in this form of meditation as they bear witness to the loss and the damage being done on the coral reefs at the same time as they are celebrating the wild diversity and richness of life there. And they're all thinking and meditating and crocheting on this. And it feels like a huge collective prayer. And that feels really powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, that aspect of it, I wondered, it just really made me wonder if this repetitive aspect of it, of course, I thought of the same thing. It's almost like praying on the rosary, you know, where you go around the wheel and you go around the wheel and you go around the wheel and there's 8,000 people, maybe not all at one time Mm -hmm. that are doing this thing. And it just made me think of magical practice. Mm -hmm. You know, art is always just a couple steps away from its roots in magic anyway. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for art to access a magical space Mm -hmm. and magical potentialities. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has a bit of a magical practice, I, I saw the potential in the crochet coral reef for a group magical working spellcraft really a spellcraft that Mm -hmm. that plays on this repetition Mm -hmm. uh, and this people at a distance but putting magical intention Mm -hmm. into something together and wondering whether any of that potential has actually been captured by this project right you know because they don't necessarily have to be thinking in terms of magic and spellcrafting in order to actualize that potential. Sure. Um, but it would help if they were. It would help. And they could actually develop a store of magical potentiality that could then be directed towards something in the mm-hmm. world. You know, and I think that's what's happening here anyway. Right. In a way, but it could be more or less intentional and mm-hmm. more or less kind of productive or controlled. Right. Um, so anyway, to the artists of the world, uh, we could maybe 
take this stuff up a notch <laughs> if we're willing to actually not be shy about the magical implications mm -hmm. um, of the art that we're performing, especially when it involves so many people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Her next example is um, located in Madagascar. Madagascar is the island that's off the east coast of Africa, mm -hmm. a very large island nation, and home to a lot of endemic species that don't exist anywhere else, yep. including a diversity of lemurs. They're so cool. Which are, are lemurs actually primates, or are they just related to primates? I think they're primates. They're basically primates. <laughs> They're, we should have probably checked that. Yeah, you, you all probably know lemurs or have seen some pictures of lemurs. Lemurs, as you you probably won't be surprised to hear that uh, that most lemurs are threatened by particularly by deforestation mm -hmm. in Madagascar, um, and uh, and so biologists and conservation biologists in Madagascar are concerned about the plight of the lemurs and the. The deforestation in Madagascar, um, of course, it's there's pressures on the land from development, mm -hmm. um, but then also, like forest people all over the world, the indigenous Malagasy have a way of living with the land that involves um, fire and clearing forest, using fire, growing things on it, but then also in the same process, reseeding mm -hmm. what will become the forest and then rotating that practice of clearing and regrowth around managed areas. And but, you know, the poverty, the post-colonial situation, Madagascar was colonized by France. Right. And the number of people who are just really scraping by have led to a relationship with the forest that has become less sustainable. Yeah. I was just going to say that until colonization, just to clarify for people in case you don't know this already, but until colonization, uh, this practice was part of the secession of the rainforest. There was humans interacted with the forest to create these resurgence plots that would come back. And it was very much part, just part of how the forest worked and regrew. Mm -hmm. um, and which is how it is in the tropical rainforest in South America, too. And I remember when I first started learning about the plight of the rainforest when I was young, I definitely heard a lot more critique of the slash and burn agriculture than I did of colonial development. You know, there was al there's always been more of a demonization of the practices of indigenous people mm -hmm. than there is an actual looking at ourselves and our own, what our governments are doing abroad and the plantations that our corporations are making. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to bring that home to something more people might have heard. Yeah. Uh, so all of this is acknowledged by Haraway when she's talking about the Madagascar situation. She's the person who she highlights in here is a colleague of hers named um, Jolly, Allison Jolly. And she did all of her field work in, Madagascar and realizing that none of the establishments acting in that situation had the vision. All of the establishments, the colonial government, the, the institutions, the school systems. Yeah. All of the institutions. Yeah. That would be the way to put it. But also Western science, mm -hmm. Western conservationists. Everybody was missing a piece and the indigenous were like missing empowerment mm -hmm. to be able to change their world. 
And so the needed change wasn't going to come from existing institutions. So she went outside of her institution, which was the Western academic model, to conceive of this collaboration, which is a series of children's books, although could be read by people of all ages, but I think appropriate for children. And there is, I think, six of them, or maybe seven, and each one of them focuses on a different species of lemur mm-hmm. and tells a story, like a kid's story, about that has like a lemur character, and it has... She doesn't say much about what the stories actually entail, but the lemur character is in its actual habitat, um, and the books are distributed with these full-color maps that show where the lemurs live on the island. And so it's not just a cute story about a lemur that maybe makes you care a little bit more about them, but it also is a ecology lesson mm-hmm. and a biogeography lesson because all the different lemurs are adapted to various, you know, climates and wet or dry and different kinds of forests and stuff that are distributed all over the island. And so they're each, you know, have their own very specific life. And she makes it sound like the books do a very good job of conveying the entanglements of the lemurs themselves, like what other plants and animals are in their environment and how those environments are threatened. And the book, so she collaborated with um, an artist to do the watercolors and um, another Malagasy scientist whose name is Hanta Rasamimanana. And they came together and created this series of books that they distributed. They didn't even use the institution of the school system, whatever there is of that in Madagascar, which seems kind of paltry, to distribute the books. Because mm-hmm. um, that's a failing institution as well, to the extent that it even is an institution. So they just distributed the books directly to villages and places so that you know parents could use it with their children, Teachers could use it with their kids and stuff, but really made sure that the books got out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of all there is to that story. It's like a, this this collaboration, an academic who is thinking like outside the box, so to speak, by taking some direct action, at least towards raising consciousness and education and knowledge about the specific habitats and the threat that lemurs are under. Because one thing that surprised me that Haraway mentions in this chapter is that she said most Malagasy have never seen a lemur mm-hmm. in person, on TV, or in a book. Right. Which to me just feels kind of shocking, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so knowing anything about lemurs at all is a step in the right direction. Also, I think that she puts Jolly's work and her collaborators' work as an example because she is... An example of a scientist and environmentalist who is absolutely including the humans indigenous to an area into her ideas about conservation. Yes. And that, unfortunately, is not the norm at all. Yes. I mean, very recently I read online somewhere that some thousands, many thousands of acres, like maybe hundreds of thousands of acres were going to be put in conservation in India, but it was forest, which required the removal of 10,000 indigenous people who live in the forest and live off of the forest. They had to be removed for this conservation effort to count. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be just sent, I guess, you know, left to move to the slums 
mm-hmm. in the city um, when they had a life there and a livelihood there. But as is often the case with environmental uh, conservation, they are not included in the story because humans are seen as separate from life. So the next example Haraway gives is actually a video game, which is called Never Alone. And it's a video game that is, I guess there's a genre of these world games that are being created to help preserve indigenous knowledge. And this one is placed within the context of and stories of the Inupiat people in the Arctic. And the story that is the basis for Never Alone is actually one from oral tradition that this master storyteller, Robert Cleveland, last told like 80 years ago. But they were able to find his daughter and she gave them permission to use the story and encouraged them to expand it and change it for a game format. Uh, It's actually in Inupiat language um, and has an Inupiat girl that is the protagonist, a young girl. And she has all of these spirit helpers and her animal friends are part of the story. And you place yourself in the story as her. And it's subtitled in other languages, but it is in the indigenous language that the game plays out. And I have to say that I was at first a little bit ambivalent about this example because it seemed like just such a reduction or I don't know, like the richness of oral tradition and mythos uh, being put into a video game just felt kind of wrong to me. But a lot of the people that are part of the project are indigenous or in excited about this preservation and as a way to engage young people who might be moving away from those life ways mm-hmm. into remembering it and inhabiting it in a way that can get them excited. And it, my own ambivalence re- made me realize that I was having some kind of like puritanical ideas about what was okay and not okay for preserving other people's pr- traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me realize that I need to actually maybe work on that and that this is part of what staying with the trouble means, which is that everything's going to not stay in nice, tidy, tidy categories. Yeah, I think it's an ambivalent. I think it is an ambivalent example. Yeah. But that's exactly what you said. Like, that's part of the point is that all of these are impure, you know, tarnished by something. Right. Non-innocent. Mm-hmm. And are just part of the world with everything. I mean, I suppose that there are probably Inupiat people who aren't excited about this as an idea. Right. You know, and then there's some that are. Right. You know, it's just, it's ambivalent. You don't learn a lot about the game itself in here, and I never quite got, like, what the object of the game is. Mm Mm-hmm. Did you? No. Yeah. Um, But it's a game in which you can die. Right. (laughs) Because Haraway talks about dying early and often in the game. Um, Which she attributes to her inability to maintain an animist worldview while playing it. Yeah. If I was going to pull like one thing out from here about the game itself that is part of what makes the game exciting, mm-hmm. um, is that it's se- she, she seems to be saying you have to be an animist to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? There's that awesome quote. There's, yeah, there's a quote, um, Eduardo Viveras de Castro, uh, who's an anthropologist who became well known for his development of, um, an idea that he called perspectivism, uh, a quote from him that says, animism is the only sensible version of materialism. I love it. Which I really like. Yeah. I like this quote partially because it makes me think, 
just like it makes me think about animism in a way that I'm not used to thinking about it, even as somebody who is a lover of animism. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's a sensible form of materialism. And sensible in this context does not just mean, you know, it the makes way sense. we use, mm-hmm. yeah, like it makes sense or it's reasonable mm-hmm. or it's logical or something. Sensible is it can be sensed. Yeah, you can feel it. It's the, it's the kind of, it's the only kind of materialism that is sensible. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure how to unpack that. Yeah. But I want to, I want to, I'm taking that out. I like to think that he means both, personally. Yeah. I think, yeah, there probably is some wordplay there. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's also some, like, academic. Sure. Uh. Sensible, if it has a technical meaning. (laughs) Yeah, technical. (laughs) Use of, of sense, you know, um, and what that means. I think another thing that's important to point out about this chapter is that, uh, you know, the Arctic, she is highlighting here partially because that is another very, fragile zone um that is going to that is on the front lines of climate change that there is fast change happening in and it has been happening quickly since the 1800s um, when the massive whaling industry destroyed so much biomass in the arctic um there has just been catastrophic change as long as europeans have been involved so she takes pains here to point out that for indigenous people this idea that there's a ecological catastrophe is not a new thing. This isn't news. Yeah, can um, I actually read this? Yeah, read that quote. Quote, Indigenous peoples around the earth have a, have a particular angle on the discourses of coming extinctions and exterminations of the Anthropocene and Capitalocene. The idea that disaster will come is not new. Disaster, indeed, genocide, and devastated home places has already come decades and centuries ago, and it has not stopped. Right. So what I think is interesting here and worth noting is that just in the same way that we talk about these new ideas in science about life all being connected and about the messiness of the web of life um, is actually catching up with indigenous knowledge. There's a way that we, uh, especially those of us of settler descent in the West, are catching up to the knowledge of the catastrophe that is the colonial project. Mm-hmm. We are started, we understand now, some of us, that there is ecological collapse coming. But mm-hmm. for indigenous people, it's, it arrived a long time ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we are catching up with the indigenous wisdom as well there. Yeah. Yeah. I actually read an article just a couple of days ago that I shared on Facebook that had a great quote from it. The article was an indigenous critique of the Green New Deal. Uh, but the quote was, um, colonizers were warned by word and weapon that a system of individual land ownership would lead to ecological catastrophe. And here we are. Totally. I mean, yeah. it was something very close to that exact so quote. So we should, we should link to that too. Which is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 She has some cool things to say too about, um, the concept of belief. After the quote that animism is the only sensible form of materialism, which is, Eduardo Viveros de Castro, Haraway says, I am not talking about people like me or kids like the one in the game believing in the spirit world. Belief is neither an indigenous nor a Thulusinian category. Um, and there's some cool stuff here, right? It's not like it, it's not right to say these indigenous people believe in a spirit world. Mm-hmm. Because that is already implying 
something that can't be sensed. Right. Right? Right. There's, it's Be- already removed. Belief is a category indigenous to the sort of Judeo-Christian worldview and not many of the ones outside of it. Mm-hmm. So it's a sensible form of materialism. Animism right. is. It's interesting that like Haraway, you know, she's, she's right there. She can say things like that and point out that, that belief is not a relevant term here. She's very up to date with her decolonial education mm-hmm. at the same time as she's still firmly planted within Western science. Totally. <laughs> like this is a thing that like she's always walking this line mm-hmm. where she realizes the inadequacy of constructs in Western science and her response to it is not, is not however to leave it mm-hmm. or defect from it. Her response is to elaborate more constructions within Western science that, you know, like her concepts of thulocene and sympoiesis and all this stuff that move in the direction or that break the boundaries of Western science, of Enlightenment science. So we're going to talk about the last example? Yes. Okay. So... And the last example is a biggie. Yeah, the last one's a big one. We're going to be spending some time with this for a bit. Um, so Haraway's last example is uh, the weaving culture and... Uh, pastoral culture of the Navajo people in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important if we talk a little bit about history, but first um, maybe to explain the context around this, which is that the Navajo people have a really rich weaving tradition. And the weaving tradition uh, while there was some, there's some evidence that it existed before contact with the Spanish, uh, it really took off after they uh, obtained some of what were called rough sheep, which are these like hardy sheep, Spanish sheep, Spanish yeah. sheep mm-hmm. that the Spanish had, and uh, the the Navajo folks at the time in the 1700s, uh, they began to breed the sheep on their own and breed them for certain kinds of wool, for hardiness to the region, for good mothering techniques. And um, also what's pretty interesting is that they, in the Na- in Navajo culture, the number four is sacred. And mm. these sheep would, the rams would sometimes have four horns. And so they liked that because that was a sacred number and they had this sacred relationship evolving with the sheep. And so they also selected for that, which Haraway actually doesn't talk about that much, but that's something we have read about other places. Yeah. Um, so. And you should look for pictures of these. We should put one up. Navajo sheep. Yeah. Maybe we'll put one in the show notes, but they're called churro. Yeah. They're called churros. C-H-U-R-R-O sheep. And some of them, yeah, have four, four horns. horns. They're so cool looking, but so. The Navajo, what I love about this part of the story is that, you know, the introduction of domesticated livestock in, onto this continent was absolutely catastrophic for so many indigenous people. So much with disease was spread that way. Whole villages were wiped out. Um, but the Navajo folks saw who did not have this, didn't, did not succumb to disease from contact saw potential in the domestic sheep that came with the Spanish and developed this highly realized, beautiful art form that was also functional that was the Navajo weaving. So they make blankets, 
clothing. Um, they're very distinct styles. Actually, a lot of the images that you might picture when you would think about the Southwest are patterns that come and are, that are inspired by Navajo weaving. Mm-hmm. Within that culture, Haraway explains that weaving is more than just craft work. Um, and that within the weaving, there is a reiteration of the stories of the Diné people as well as some of the mythos and their history, collective history, and also just a a literal co-creation in the world that is sung and prayed during the weaving. And so one of the prayers that people, it's usually women, that Navajo women will pray while weaving is, with me there is beauty, in me there is beauty, from me, beauty radiates. And that prayer will be repeated, just as we were talking earlier about how certain kinds of textile forms mm-hmm. are repetitive and meditative. So mm-hmm. is weaving, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. very repetitive. Mm-hmm. And so to have this sort of incantation and prayer happening while the weaving is happening is just so beautiful. And the word that is translated to beauty in that stanza is H-O-Z-H-O, and I'm not sure how to say that, but it looks like hozo. Um, but that word can be translated either as beauty, balance, harmony, or order. And Haraway talks about how that word could maybe more best be translated as right relationship, as sort of the cosmic harmony mm-hmm. of humans interwoven with the web of life. Mm-hmm. In this culture, weaving is a world-sustaining and world-making practice. Um, and I say all of this background because the, the it's important to understand the place of this practice within Navajo culture when we talk about what has been done with the churros and the sheep of, these, of this people um, over time. So this history is a little bit hard to talk about, but it's important for us to know that this happened um, and continues to happen and to look out and make sure that we are supporting similar policies. The Navajo folks and their sheep went through two attempted genocides from the U.S. government. And the first was in 1863. Kit Carson led a forced march of the people and exterminated most of the churros. And the Navajo folks were marched away where they lived for four years in a prison camp and then marched back. In the meantime, most of their sheep had been killed. All of their peach orchards had been cut down. And so a way of life was very hard to recreate upon return. This is why Haraway and other people refer to it as attempted genocide, because it was the attempt to make life impossible there. Um, some Navajo folks did escape into the hills with some churros, and so they were able to bring them back in and try to restore the line, which they were able to do. But following return, the Diné people faced, as is often the case in the colonial relationship with indigenous people in this continent, a kind of constant system of debt accruement through the trading posts, where these gorgeous blankets were bought by the pound rather than assessed for individual beauty and use. Um, and bought as raw wool. As raw wool, right. Even as they were resold for a lot more money even then. And then turned around and resold, yeah, yeah by the traders, by the whites. Because they were already very famous for these beautiful yeah. blankets, yeah. you know? Um mm-hmm. 
So they were in this economic situation where they were forced to make more and more blankets just to survive, to get basic needs. And therefore, they bred the sheep exponentially. And so there were really large numbers of these grazing animals in this area, in the Four Corners area of the Mm -hmm. Southwest. So the second attempted genocide happened, interestingly enough, uh, during the era of the New Deal in the 30s. And during that time period, people, Europeans, (laughs) people of European descent uh, were starting to understand the impact on the environment that American culture was having. And so and what the cost of Western expansion and industrial work in the landscape was doing. And so they started to apply a sort of harm analysis in this area and and started looking at like what were the sheep doing to the environment which again the sheep were i mean the sheep were creating a lot of damage but it was due to this need to have huge production amounts of blankets to meet the needs of the people but instead of acknowledging this disparity in the colonial economics of the area that the navajo folks were dealing with these supposedly progressively minded agents of the government just saw the sheep as the problem and the tendency to have the sheep as the problem. So in 1934, they killed off most of the people's goats, which was their subsistence meat primarily. And then by 1935, they killed most of the churros. In fact, uh, one of the more horrifying parts of this chapter is that the Diné people have strong relationships with their sheep and they're almost part of the family because you're it's who you your livelihood is made up with and your life revolves around that relationship and at this point that was even more true and so in 1935 not only did these government agents kill so many sheep they often did it in front of the family members so most of these sheep would have names it would be sheep that you had, it would be like an animal that you had a relationship with. And having the government, American government come in and kill them all in front of you, while you not only have the loss and grief of seeing individuals that you know murdered, you also know that that is your livelihood and that is your hope for survival in the future. So this era was considered a second wave of attempted genocide that was done in the name of environmentalism and progress. Part of what they were after, too, was enforcing a sort of European nuclear family mindset and way of life onto the Diné people. And so the New Deal agents tried to divide up all of this land that had been held collectively into individual family units, which did not really allow for grazing and didn't allow for collective work. Um, And so... Collective ownership of land wasn't recognized and they imposed what are called stocking quotas oh, right. on each of the families, which is like how many sheep or goats you could have on the land. And then by definition, the head of the family was a male. Oh, right. Which is not how uh, the Diné people worked at that time. They had matrilineal mm-hmm. families. Uh-huh. At least like the the women were the ones who were responsible for, for the, sheep. the animals and the care of the land and the grazing of the livestock oh, right. and stuff. So that, So they took that power away, at least on paper, 
they made what was on paper not correspond to that at all. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the pastoral economy was matrifocal, so women-centered. So in those couple years, a million goats and sheep were killed that were belonged to the Navajo people. Um, and that has never, that debt has never been repaid. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. began or continued a, an, a system of impoverishment and debt that continues today. And I want to highlight again that the second attempt at genocide and life destroying, lifeway destroying project was done by progressive minded U.S. government officials. Mm-hmm. And so when with, we, uh, with like some, form of environmental consciousness, consciousness right. at least supposedly like they thought they were having environmental consciousness right so yeah. once again we need to realize think about the ways that well-meaning environmentally minded policymakers can actually do a lot of damage and can enact environmental racism with if they are do, enacting policy without acknowledging the legacy of colonialism and without acknowledging the indigenous framework that people are existing within. Mm-hmm. The genocide against the Navajo, who are also called the Diné people, has been inseparable from this extermination of their sheep and right. goats. The sheep, which they brilliantly repurposed this colonial yeah. animal, you know, not that the animal is colonial, but the colonial incursion of the Spanish brought them just like a lot of the Plains Indians got horses as well, right. you know, and brilliantly made use of the horses that came with the colonists as well. They made use of these sheep and, and are now very partnered in their life ways with these sheep. And the churro sheep were almost extinct, made almost extinct. And so extermination, relocation, <laughs> forced relocation off of their lands on a couple of different occasions. And then in the 20th century, came another huge colonial incursion with the realization that Black Mesa, a big um, Diné and Hopi, uh, just the center of their world kind of, was also a giant coal deposit. The biggest on the continent, right? The biggest on the continent. And so for the last 50 years, and it's ongoing, the folks there have also had to had to deal with this extractive economy based on coal. All of this is happening on top of, or just not on top, but as like a continuing part of colonization and genocide. Yeah. But the chapter ends with this really, really exciting story about the resurgence of the churro. Yeah. So with all of that as the background, Mm -hmm. as the history, um, all of that death and destruction and colonization and suppression, we come to the story that Don Haraway wants to uplift and wants to put forward as an example. Part of it is the resurgence of the churro sheep themselves. Yeah. There's a great story here of people, um, not all of them indigenous by any means, uh, but then if not at first, at least eventually collaborating with the Diné who are try- who have like built back up the population of churro sheep. And now there are now once again, um, a lot of churro sheep in Diné hands and the weaving culture is ongoing. So already we see like this companion species being 
restored into its right relation, mm-hmm. into a, a little closer to maybe this Hotso, this like right relationship with its land, mm-hmm. with the land where it was kind of came to be on, mm-hmm. and the land where its people live. And the weaving practice is something that's less exploitative and more celebrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get you get the feeling that the authorities don't want to exterminate the churro sheep anymore. Right. Although, who knows? And then towards the end of this kind of tale of resurgence, where she brings in... There's lots of proper names in here, like lots of names of uh, different NGOs... And like the Slow Food Foundation for Biodiversity, Two Gray Hills Trading Post, the Navajo Churro Sheep Association, all of these coalitions that have come together in order to like make all of this happen. Uh, and then finally we get to Black Mesa Water Coalition. And the Black Mesa Water Coalition was founded in 2001 by a group of young intertribal people committed to addressing water depletion, natural resource exploitation, and health in Navajo and Hopi communities. And one of their first areas of focus was on the mining, on the coal mining, and on Peabody Energy, which was the evil company that was conducting the mining operations. And they were central to the actions that closed down the Black Mesa mine and the Mojave generating station. These battles are not won, by the way. This is still ongoing, but there have been battles won along the way. Um, I encourage you all to still support these people. You know, maybe you've heard of Black Mesa as a center for where people are directing energy to support this indigenous fight over their land. It's still ongoing. Please support them. And Black Mesa Water Coalition, they have been and were for a long time all about fighting the coal, but they also, they have lots of projects reweaving, trying to heal some of the divisions and the ties between the Hopi and the Navajo. And, but also they, they are connected to the weavers and the herders and the sheep as well. They buy wool from the sheep herders and help give them a good price for it. So anyway, we could go into more detail, but what really comes together at the end of this section of the chapter is a broad, like this is the broadest coalition of people that's been presented yet. You know, from the Crocheted Reef to the Malagasy to the video game. These are activists and indigenous folks, weavers and elders and people concerned with the environment, people concerned with extractive economies and fighting fossil fuels and climate change. And all of this stuff is embedded in this story. And the sheep and the weaving are at the center of it. They've become kind of symbolic of Danae Lifeway and uh, land stewardship and art, so to speak, and like economic self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And so the sheep are, and the weavers and the herders are, of course, entangled, are a part of this cultural resurgence, but also this very high-stakes fight over land and exploitation by extractive coal. So, as in all the examples, Haraway is like, this is sympoiesis. This is people in messy relationships of becoming with each other, not just people, but this is people and land and animals in messy relationships of becoming with, working towards resurgence in a damaged landscape, not just physical landscape, but social landscape, colonial landscape, 
struggling to reach outside of their lanes, their specific lanes, you know, to make productive entanglements with other forms of life, people doing other kinds of work uh, towards multi-species flourishing. So yeah, the chapter ends with this big, resounding, very moving, high stakes, and hopeful, in a lot of ways hopeful, um, example, or cluster of examples, really. Mm-hmm. And she definitely takes pains to point out that the reestablishment of the churro is tied to cultural renewal mm-hmm. and reweaving young people mm-hmm. into the pastoral and matrifocal life mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. I want to point out, though, that like because we know people who have lended support at Black Mesa, that not only is the fight still ongoing, but it's pretty dangerous and a lot of the mining and interest can be pretty violent and threatening. And, um, just want to say here, like solidarity with the folks that are the Diné people there who are on the front lines of extraction, violent extractive economies, and also everybody going there and sending Mm -hmm. support there. Yeah. Yeah. This is a powerful, this is a powerful story. Mm -hmm. And maybe, if you were a little bit underwhelmed by the crochet coral reef or maybe the video game, as nice as those examples are, I can understand the reaction that like, this is great, but maybe this is not enough. Mm-hmm. Or if these examples seem like kind of too tame to give you hope for the future, then maybe the Dene and the churro sheep, although this is still a very dangerous story and who knows how this is going to play out, there's a lot going on here weaving together indigenous culture, settler culture, the fight against fossil fuels, extractive economies, and land stewardship, all potentizing each other mm-hmm. in ways that I, th- I really think can be models for collaborations that we can undertake. Yeah. And I think it would be good, maybe if you're listening to this, think about what do you know of or what's on your radar? What do you see going on around you and that maybe you're taking part in that has the characteristics of this sympoietic becoming with playing string figures in the Thulu scene that Haraway is trying to uplift? I think it would be good practice to learn to see in this way, mm-hmm. you know, to learn to recognize. And then once we can recognize and once we understand what it feels like, then we can think about how to intensify, and how to proliferate these examples. Also, I, I would like to just highlight again, like, all of these examples are assemblages or coalitions or groups of people and organizations and life forms working together towards an end. And I'd like to juxtapose that with the solitary, heroic, environmentalist dude um, or actor, the activist doing a, a heroic act, which there's also a place for that, but creating webs of life where we work in um, concert together mm-hmm. to create resistance and ways of life that are worth fighting for. Yeah. It's not Edward Abbey time. No, it's not. If it ever was. <laughs>
Well, I hope you enjoyed our discussion of Chapter 3 of Staying with the Trouble. If you're interested in the things that we discussed here, do check out our show notes. We are unveiling expanded show notes, and this episode is going to have um, a lot of different links and images, hopefully. You can always write us at thebookonfirepodcast at gmail.com. We also really want to thank Reanimator, who supplies our music. Reanimator is our old friends, Joel and Don. Their album, Special Powers, that came out in 2001, has been the source for all the music that you've heard on the podcast so far. Next time, we are going to talk about two chapters, because the chapters are getting shorter here. And so, chapter four and five is going to be the subject of next time's show, which will come out in two weeks. So, chapter four is Making Kin. And chapter five is called A Wash in Urine. I'm excited to see what that one is going to be about. So if you're reading ahead, um, that's what we're going to talk about for next time. And we will see you then. Thanks, y'all.